I'm glad you're here this morning, and I want to thank Chris for making arrangements for our children so that I can speak freely about some things that we need to consider, but some things they don't need to hear. I want you to know that I have given more thought to what I'm going to say this morning than in any sermon in a very long time. And that's not because I'm not sure of what the text says or what it means. It's not, sure, not because I'm unsure of the applicability of this to all of us, because it speaks so directly to the times in which we live, and because there is so much here that needs to be said. Also, I've given a lot of thought to it because I don't want what I'm about to say to be understood as in any way vindictive or hate-driven. I have to be honest and plain-spoken, but I don't want to be unkind, and I don't intend to be. We've been saying all along in our study of Romans 1 that Paul's letter to the Romans is about the gospel. There's not anything more important than the gospel. And because there's not anything more important than the gospel, there's not anything more important for us to understand than the gospel. And that's why we've been giving so much attention to Romans chapter 1, because it introduces this great theme of the gospel. Last week, I discussed what Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 17, that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And that this means that God is entirely and absolutely righteous. And because he is absolutely and entirely righteous, he cannot tolerate sin. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11 says, God is righteous, a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Why is our God indignant every day? Because he is righteous and therefore sin is repugnant to him. And because he is righteous, sin calls forth his wrath as a natural reaction. You see, God's wrath is not like ours. God's wrath is not an emotional reaction to circumstances. It is a moral reaction to that which is opposed to his nature. And that's why wrath is also part of the gospel. You see, God's wrath is what the gospel saves us from. And the better we understand the wrath of God, the better we will understand and the more we will appreciate the gospel. God's wrath is what we would all suffer throughout eternity were it not for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice that in verse 17, Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And then in verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Our sin is the opposite of his nature. And because our sin is the opposite of his nature, his wrath is the natural response. So we can't really talk about his righteousness without also talking about his wrath. And so his wrath is also part of the message of the gospel. We usually think of God's wrath being revealed in the final judgment, and it is. But Paul also says that God's wrath is being revealed now. In verse 18, he uses a present participle, a passive participle, to say God's wrath is being revealed in the here and now. And then he explains how. What Paul describes in verses 18 to 32 is a society in chaos. 
He describes a society that has lost its way. He describes his own times in a way that sounds very much like our own. And so we need to ask, what was wrong with the society in Paul's day and what's wrong with ours today? And the answer that Paul gives is clear enough, isn't it? He says it is a society that has pushed God aside and it acts as though God does not exist. It is a God-denying society. And there are consequences to living in a God-denying society. Notice that Paul does not say that people do not know God. In fact, he says just the opposite. He says that they do know God, but what can be known about God and is known about God is suppressed by them. God has plainly revealed it, he says. In the creation that he has made. But men have suppressed that knowledge. So Paul says they are without excuse. For although they knew God. They did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him. There are no excuses for anyone. Everyone can see the reality of God in the creation. Unless they just don't want to. You do not need a Bible. To know that there's a God. The result is. Paul says they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and reptiles and creeping things. Both in Paul's day and now, when people push God out of their consciousness and ignore him as live as if he does not exist and even deny that he does, they become fools. Those are not my words, they are the word of God. In Psalms 14, in verse 1, the psalmist wrote, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. In Proverbs chapter 1, in verse 7, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and destruction and instruction. And because they became fools, he says, they begin to behave in all sorts of absurd ways that are a denial of all reality. One of the long-standing criteria for determining insanity is the denial of reality, delusional thinking. And the world that you and I are living in today is filled with delusional thinking. It's so filled with it that sometimes we don't recognize it. It's so filled with it that sometimes we don't respond to it in the ways that we need to. Notice that three times in Romans 1, in verses 24, 26, and 28, Paul says, therefore, God gave them up. Gave them up to what? He gave them up to the consequences of their own behavior. He gave them up to the consequences of their choice. Let's look at each of those statements. First of all, in verses 24 and 25, he says they follow the lusts of their hearts and dishonor their own bodies. He doesn't get specific yet, but he's headed there. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. I would suggest to you that what Paul has in mind when he says they worshiped and served the creature is not only the images of animals and birds and reptiles and things of that nature, but even more, that people worship themselves. They worship their own image. They worship their own thoughts. They worship their own wills. How often have you heard someone say, 
something like this. There are no moral or spiritual absolutes. The truth is only what you believe is true. And because it is your truth, your personal truth, and no one can contradict that truth because it is your personal truth, that is putting oneself in the place of God and worshiping our own image and not his. Then in verses 26 and 27, Paul gets more specific. He says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, which he describes in terms of homosexual acts. Sexual relations that are contrary to nature, he says. In other words, they are not the way that God made us. They are not what he created us for. And he says that God made us in certain ways, but people act in ways that are contrary to that. And many claim that God has made them to do those things. And yet Paul says just the opposite. He says that engaging in homosexual behavior is the very antithesis of how God made us and what he made us for. Notice that he describes both male and female homosexuality, and he describes these as shameless acts. And the consequences are they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. That is, not only, not only does God's judgment come later, but there also God's judgment is present even now. The chaos that we are experiencing in our own culture is the outworking of God's wrath in the here and now. And he's just getting started. And as long as we pursue and condone such behavior, we will continue as a society to experience God's wrath in this way, even as we are witnessing the disintegration of our own culture. Then in verses 28 through 32, Paul doesn't let us breathe a sigh of relief because we're not homosexuals. Rather, he describes what he calls all manner of unrighteousness, including such sins as envy, gossip, covetousness, murder, slander, disobedience to parents, and heartlessness. Does this not explain some of the outrageous things that we hear about people doing? Things that people do to one another that are heartless? Things that people do to one another that are virtually unimaginable? For we hear about strong young men mugging helpless elderly women to steal a few dollars to support their drug habit, or where we hear and read about adults abusing and even killing their own children, or standing by and letting somebody else do it, a society that allows such things to happen is open to the condemnation of God and suffers his wrath. We cannot help but experience societal chaos. But we need to understand, it cannot, will not go on forever. Let me give you some examples of the absurd things going on in our world. Things that once would have been considered outrageous, but now are normalized and even applauded by many. And the rest of us are told that we ought to be ashamed because we don't applaud them. And we don't approve of them. Remember, these are the results of denying God and elevating self in his place, we have become a nation of fools. A high school teacher rebuked her students for referring to a child sexual predator as a pedophile. Her response was, we will not sit in judgment on someone just because he wants to have sex with a five-year-old. 
She said, instead of that, we should call them MAPs, Minor Attracted Persons. Such an idea is outrageous and delusional. Another teacher more recently was discovered moonlighting in pornographic videos. When this was discovered and made known, she decided to give up teaching because pornography pays better. There was outrage. There was outrage that she was exposed. There was outrage, not over the fact that what she was doing was immoral and the negative influence that it had, but outrage over the fact that she was forced to take a second job in order to support herself. A political candidate in our own area was also doing sexually explicit online videos with her husband. When exposed, offender, uh, defender said that the criticism of her was only because she was a woman. They said nothing because of the inappropriateness of her behavior. And we're supposed to think that's okay. The entire transgender movement is an example of denying God's created order. People deny that gender and anatomy are related and claim that a man can be a woman in a man's body and vice versa. This is totally against all reason and against all science. We are not born as blank canvases ready to choose our gender. We are what we are born as and it is absurd to say otherwise and yet it is widely accepted. Even young children are coaxed into believing that they are something other than the gender that they were born with and are given drugs and surgery to change them into who they, quote, really are. This is called gender-affirming care, when in reality, it is nothing other than gender-denying care, because it, because it is a denial of the reality with which these children were born. Because such children are always guided by adults, they do not come to these conclusions on their own. Because they're always guided by adults, this is nothing other than child abuse. It ignores the reality that 80% of children who experience what's called gender dysphoria or confusion get over it. And many who are treated medically and or surgically later regret it. Although such reports are ignored and are discounted. A school board in our own state allowed a teenage boy who self-identified as a girl to dress that way and even to use the girls' restrooms. He did, and he sexually assaulted an actual girl. Rather than facing its error, the school board covered it up by transferring him to another school, and he did it again. And when the father of one of those girls publicly exposed the school board for their behavior, he was arrested. To my knowledge, the school board has yet to be held legally accountable. Men who claim that they are now women are allowed to complete, compete athletically with real girls and women and so have an unfair advantage in many sports. But we're told that this is their right and that they should be allowed to do so. One has to wonder, where are all the feminists who clamor for the rights of actual women and girls? Why aren't they challenging this absurdity instead of standing by silently? A woman, quote, marries another woman and calls her her husband. A man marries another man and calls the other man his wife. Just because they say it does not make it so. 
but people pretend that it is. Some children and teens now self-identify not just as the opposite sex, but even as animals. Some as cats, some as dogs, some are horses. There's a name for it. They're called furries. And some schools uphold this foolish behavior and punish students who refuse to treat their classmates as the animals they choose to be. The idea that a person can claim a gender other than what he or she actually is leaves open the possibility of claiming to be anything other than human. If a man can claim to be a woman and that's accepted, why cannot someone claim to be a St. Bernard? And we're supposed to believe that this is okay. This is absolutely irrational thinking. A father whose teenage daughter claims that she is not a girl, but is what is called binary, insists on choosing her own pronouns. And so her father submits and refers to her as they. This past summer on Pride Night, the Los Angeles Dodgers hosted a Satanist group called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. They allowed them to perform during one of their home games and even honored them with their Community Hero Award. During that performance, men dressed as nuns engaged in all sorts of lewd behavior on the field, including having one man who was posing as the crucified Christ suspended on a cross while the others danced around the cross and performed simulated homosexual acts on him. The Dodgers had earlier disinvited this group after protests from Catholic organizations, but then they re-invited them because of pressure from homosexual and transsexual groups. And we're supposed to say that this is okay. Target partners with a Satanist, a Satanist clothing designer to promote a line of clothing and accessories, particularly targeting children and teens that promotes both Satanism and homosexuality. One of his pens reads, Satan respects pronouns. And one of his shirts says, cure transphobia, not trans people. Another says, too queer for here. It is offensively absurd. At Disneyland, a man dressed as a fairy princess and having a mustache welcomes young girls into the enchanted chamber, which is not only absurd, it's creepy. Even churches have gotten into the act, with many displaying the rainbow flag and worse. The Emmaus United Church of Christ in Vienna, Virginia, recently announced on their sign a drag story hour for children on a Sunday afternoon. That same church's website says in bold print that they are, quote, an open and affirming congregation that has publicly declared that lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, or questioning LGBTQ people or those of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcome in its full life and ministry. And then they further explain that as being welcome in membership, in leadership, and in employment. They further state we are proud of the fact that Emmaus Church of Christ is where the Reverend Ann Holmes, the first openly lesbian minister in the United Church of Christ, was ordained. 
And this is a group that wears the name of Christ. School boards argue with parents that books promoting homosexual and transgender behavior ought to be allowed even in elementary school libraries. Yet when those same parents begin to read aloud from those books at school board meetings, they are silenced because they're told the contents are inappropriate. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. On the book banning issue, just try to get a Christian-oriented book placed in the library of your kid's school and see how open-minded they are. The people who are in favor of placing homosexual and transgender books in elementary school libraries are not simply interested in their rights, folks. They're interested in your kids. As one of them said recently in a national public radio interview, we have to produce more and more of these books and get them into the school libraries so we can turn these kids. Dr. Paul McHugh, who for 26 years was professor of psychiatry and head of the psychiatry department at Johns Hopkins University Medical School, which, by the way, is the institution that pioneered in what's called sex reassignment surgery, has written this. Sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. Claiming that this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder. Outside the sexual realm, but related to it, we are a society that has the skills to perform delicate heart surgeries on babies in the womb, yet which allows for the destruction of millions of unborn infants simply because their parents don't want them. And we call it a matter of privacy and a matter of choice. On Interstate 55 between Memphis, Tennessee and the Illinois state line, there's now a series of billboards placed there by a Seattle-based group called Shout Your Abortion, encouraging women and young girls, even minors, to come to Illinois to have their abortions. One of these billboards proclaims, abortion is part of God's plan. How did we get here? How did this happen to us? How did we become so delusional as a society? This wasn't a sudden shift in thinking, but it happened over a long period of time and was characterized by gradual steps. As far back as the 1960s, the God is Dead movement proclaimed that God no longer had a place in public life. And so prayer and Bible reading were removed from public schools and from other public settings. God was seldom mentioned in society and almost is, uh, public society and almost is now never. And it was considered in bad taste to mention God's name. And in some places, you might lose your job if you did so. And so as a result of that, uh, we began to conclude that things were very, very different than what in fact they are. Here's a quote I can find it, excuse me. Here we go.
Each person, we are told, has his or her own standard of right and wrong. And no one is allowed to say any differently, even though such choices may be harmful, even though they may be harmful not only to the individual, but also to society. And even though they may be absolutely against all reason and be completely irrational, people are allowed to say whatever they wish to say, and we're not supposed to contradict them. When there are no absolutes, no one can possibly be wrong, except those who say there are absolutes. Then tolerance and inclusiveness become the highest societal values. We tolerate anything and include everybody in anything they want to be included in. And where does all this come from? It comes from the rejection of God. Because with God, you have absolutes. You have moral guidelines. You have truths concerning right and wrong. Without him, you have moral and societal chaos. People today talk about gender dysphoria. I would suggest to you that our real problem is God dysphoria. The question we need to ask today is what should be our response? What should be our Christian response to the situation in which we find ourselves? I'm not here today to curse the darkness. I'm here today to attempt to light a candle. First of all, we need to recognize that anger cannot be our primary response to the unbelieving world. We can't blame the world for being the world. The kinds of behavior that I've been describing do make us angry, and they should. But we can't blame the world because they have lost their way. That is between them and God because they have rejected him. Our task is to try to lead them back. Our task is to tell them the good news of God's love. And if we respond only in anger, then they will not hear what we have to say about the love of God. We have to move beyond anger. Second, if we're being realistic about the sins of others, let's not forget to be realistic about our own. Let's be sure that we are not envious, jealous-hearted, covetous, gossiping people who feel good about sitting in judgment on homosexuals. Don't forget that Romans 1, 18 to 32 records a whole list of sins, some of which may be our own. Let's be sure to get the logs out of our own eyes. Third, speak the truth in love. When you're faced with a world in crisis, it isn't loving to simply ignore what people are saying and doing or to keep silent and act as if everything is all right. We have to refuse to play the game and call out sin for what it is. For example, don't play the pronoun game. If you're in an environment where you're expected to use the preferred pronouns, just call people by their name. Don't use any pronouns at all. And I would suggest that we stop using the word gay to describe homosexuals. Homosexuals labeled themselves that way as gay years ago because they didn't like the word homosexual. It's too explicit. It says what they are. They hate it. And so they pirated a perfectly good English word. It has nothing to do with what they are and what they do. Don't go along with it. Using gay only pretends that that's okay when it isn't. And it's not loving. It's just not loving to join in the absurdity. And number four, don't discount the fact 
that the gospel can change people. When Paul says God gave them up, he was not saying God gave up on them. The entire letter to the Romans proves that that's not the case. Romans is all about God wanting to redeem everyone, both Jew and Gentile. So in a society where people want to be changed into something other than what they are, let's urge them to let Jesus change them into the likeness of Christ. Don't for a moment discount the power of the gospel, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, including those described in Romans 1, 18-32. Let's remember 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11. to Paul said, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's all bad news, isn't it? But then here's the good news. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let me ask you this, how do those people in Corinth become washed and sanctified and justified? The answer is, someone told them about Jesus. Someone told them that there was a Redeemer. Someone told them there was a better way. It's been said that the light shines brightest in the darkest night. Let's let the light shine in this dark world. Let's tell people the story of Jesus. Let's declare the gospel. It's the gospel that's about Jesus, the gospel about God's power, the gospel about promises kept, the gospel about faith, the gospel about the righteousness of God, and the gospel about his wrath, a wrath that is evident in the world already and which will someday be unleashed for all eternity on those who continue to refuse to acknowledge God. Tell them the story. And if you've heard the story, you know you need to escape God's wrath. Turn to Christ and do so today. If you've been pushing God out of your life, it's time to let him in. And then, as Jesus said, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Kelly, please.